Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the first time in Canadian history, the country has an Indigenous Governor General. Who is Mary Simon, and what does she bring to the table? Plans to resume travel are slowly but surely ramping up across the country as more Canadians become fully vaccinated. But are Canadians protected in case of continued change? And the suspension of U.S. sprinter Shikari Richardson has ignited the Olympic banned substance debate again. Why is a recreational drug like marijuana on the banned substance list in the first place? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. For the first time in Canadian history, the country has an Indigenous Governor General. Ethnic leader Mary Simon was named to the vice regal role by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. Stephanie Taylor has the details. Speaking in Nuktatuk, Mary Simon delivered her first remarks as Canada's new Governor General in her own words. The former diplomat and Anuk leader says she is honoured, humbled and ready to be Canada's first Indigenous Governor General. The 74-year-old has been a leader in the North for the past 40 years and became Canada's first ambassador for circumpolar affairs and also served as its ambassador to Denmark. Her appointment comes amid grief over First Nations discovering hundreds of unmarked graves at former residential school sites. As anger spills out, statues of past and present monarchs have been toppled. But Simon doesn't believe there is a conflict with an Indigenous person now serving as the Queen's representative in Canada. I do understand, as an Indigenous person, that there is pain and suffering across our nation. Simon believes her appointment is a historic and inspirational step on the long road toward reconciliation. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So what are the ramifications and what's the uh, the feedback from uh, the appointment yesterday? Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, first of all, I guess your, your impressions when the announcement was made yesterday, your reaction. Yeah, I mean, I this was a long time coming because mm-hmm. they have been going through this vetting process for months now, and it's been you know five or six months since Julie Payette resigned. That seems like years ago, but it was, it was yes. months ago. And so, and when people are talking about you know what, when is the prime minister going to go to election? It's hard to imagine a prime minister going up to a chief justice to to obtain you know license to go to election. And so, we, I think there was a sense that we sort of needed needed this to happen. The appointment itself, I think, is is honestly fantastic and inspired and. I think the government would have had a really difficult time justifying why they didn't choose an Indigenous person if they chose not to. And so I think this is, you know, kind of where we expected the government to go and also makes a lot of sense in terms of what we're talking about as a country. I mean, I think obviously the government, Governor General is not a policymaker. And so the Governor General cannot actively and, um, you know, with a perspective of lawmaking, go in and change any of, of the, the moving pieces when it comes to reconciliation and doesn't make decisions in that way. But she is obviously, she, you know, she's been an Indigenous leader her whole life. She's someone who has a lot of trust, a lot of respect, a lot of legitimacy. And I think she brings, you know, absolutely the right perspective. And this is an, an indication of the government um, realizing that, Reconciliation has to mean a lot of things, but it has to mean bringing Indigenous people to to the table and to positions of high leadership, and that's what this is. You know, when you look at her CV, I guess the first question I had was, what took so long? I mean, how, yeah. how did she not get... I know she was... We're told now she was considered, I guess, back in 2010. Uh, yeah. But And she had made some comments that were very critical of the government of the day, and that may have been a factor in her not getting it. But uh, timing is everything, I guess, in politics. And, and I know some people are saying, well, this was a political appointment. Well, of course it is. Uh, but but there's more to it than that. I mean, the role of the governor general, as you've just outlined, is is not to be a partisan. And, and I don't get the sense that she will be. But I guess one of the things that I like some people are concerned about here is she has been a strong voice and she has been critical of government policies or government inaction. Uh, does she continue to do that in this role or does she just kind of back off and, and watch? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, I, I actually watched a clip. Um, some of your listeners may have, seen, may have seen the same thing, but I watched a clip of her last night on Twitter, um, you know, back in the 80s going at, you know, head to head with Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Mm-hmm. about um, Aboriginal rights. And so, yes, you know, she has been someone who has been very vocal. And when you think about some of the other people who have served in the role, 
you know, their careers, you know, there's, a lot, there's lots of journalists, uh, most recently an astronaut, pe- you know, people who have been very impressive in their own right and very active professionally, but not necessarily people who have engaged directly on political things, you know, as political actors themselves. And she has done that. And so I think for her, part of the challenge is going to be, you know, how do I continue to, to be an Indigenous leader, which she absolutely is, and pivot now to a different form of leadership? And it seems to me by all accounts that she's, she's so mindful of that, right? And she's, you know, when she talked yesterday about how she can identify with anybody, and she's seeing this role as a way of bri- building bridges. And so I think she's, she's actually told us a lot already about how she plans to play this role. It's going to be interesting, though. You know, the role is that she's not supposed to interact with government or with policy in situations like this. And uh, yeah. it's, it's going to be difficult for her, I guess, not to do that. But she can still play an advocacy role. I mean, past governors general and, and, and lieutenant generals in, 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 in provincial governments. I and mean, we've had a couple of aboriginal uh, lieutenant uh, governor in here in Ontario in the last little while. And they do do what they can about this but they do it and I, I i don't want to use the word benign but it's it's not a, it's not as a direct way as as she has been doing in the past yeah and i mean so obviously like this speaks to the interesting role the governor general has like you have that possibility of being that constitutional fire extinguisher but usually that doesn't come up right mostly your role is public it's ceremonial it's symbolic it's working with people the governor general will spend most of her time working with Canadians, not being involved in what's happening on Parliament Hill. And so, you know, there's lots of ways for her to be a leader, for her to be an advocate, for her to be a representative, um, you know, to be a voice. Like, there's lots of that that can happen in that public role. And all, you know, all the while protecting her apolitical status in the event that, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that quite soon, that, you know, after her installation, the Prime Minister will be, will be seeking a dissolution of Parliament. You know, there's that's fine, right? Like, there's, there's nothing about the fact that she's an Indigenous leader that, that affects or has to affect the fact that she'll, she'll, you know, go through that process and make that transaction. The other part comes, you know, if you've, got a, if you've got a crisis, if you've got a government that won't, you know, lost confidence and won't resign, if you've got a government that, if, you, if it's not clear who holds the confidence of the House, that's where a Governor General would have to take a much more active role. And so, in, you know, in so doing, we have to make sure that that person bears no interest in the outcome of that from a political or partisan perspective. And I mean, absolutely, she, you know, she has spoken to that and indicated, yeah, you know, like I, that's, I get that part of the job. I also get that this is an opportunity for me to play that role as a bridge builder. So I think her, her approach is so nuanced and she clearly gets all of those folds in a very peculiar role. I suppose maybe the best example of that was, uh, well, a number of years ago when Mikhail Jean was faced uh, with a, a somewhat similar dilemma uh, when Stephen Harper wanted to dissolve Parliament. And that, that was when the, uh, the the gang of three, Jack Layton and Gilles Duceppe mm-hmm. and uh, Stéphane Dion, said, no, no, give us, you know, let us form a government. And uh, there was speculation, well, she might say no to Stephen Harper. No, we're going to give these other guys a shot. And as it turned mm-hmm. out, you know, it was granted. I think most of them embrace that role and seem to understand the significance and and, and just how important it is. Uh, you know, we could make it some, probably some arguments about the last uh, governor general, but that, that's that aside. I think on balance, though, they, they've they've risen to the occasion more often than not. Oh yeah, and I mean, governors general also have a lot, you know, lots of of precedent and experience and and constitutional law and politics to guide them. And so when something like that comes up, like, we, you know, I'm thinking back to that 20, you know, my God, that seems so long ago now. I know. It was 2008. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, like she, you know, Mikhail Jean talked at the time and talked later about her constitutional advisors and the sense of, of kind of knowing here are the rules that govern a situation like this. And while, yes, the governor general does bring her own, you know, her own mind and her own judgment to the situation, there, you know, essentially a governor general's role is, to, is the most primary role is to make sure we have a prime minister and to make sure the prime minister is legitimate. And so then, you know, in order to figure that out, it's not about deciding who you want to be prime minister. It's about listening to the House of Commons and finding out where that confidence is. And if there's no confidence in anyone, well, then we need an election. But if there's, you know, essentially the, the person, the MP who has the confidence of the House is the prime minister. And rather than you know, it's not like the governor general would sort of make that up. Like the point is to go figure out where the will of the house is. One of the other interesting aspects of this is uh, she 
will be a voice and has been a voice for many, many years uh, for indigenous peoples here. Uh, but th there's a focus here on, on the Arctic and, and the northern parts of our country, uh, which mm -hmm. is something that's been sadly lacking, I guess, in the last little while. I know that this, this government's made an awful lot of overtures that we really want to do something about that. But there's a lot going on up there internationally, and she's been at the forefront of, of standing up for Canada in that. I'm wondering if she's going to continue in that role. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, she she has spent, I mean, a lot of her career, and we've learned a little bit more about it over the past 24 hours or so, but a lot of her focus has been on the Circumpolar, and she's represented, um, you know, she's been a, an ambassador, she's been a diplomat, she's, you know, she's played that role. And so I think you're right, like there's, she's got a lot of experience and knowledge in things that we need to be more front and center in terms of the conversations we're having. And so I think, you know, there's no reason that she wouldn't continue to be, like, visible in that role and she wouldn't continue to, to resonate and, and be in that space. And I'm really interested to see how she plays a, the role in, the in a kind of educational perspective. There's a lot that a governor general can do in terms of using that public space that they have and using the authority that they have to talk to us about things that we should know. Even yesterday when she made the point, you know, she, she was denied the opportunity to learn French. To have someone in such a strong leadership position, but not a political one, not a partisan one, share that, you know, it's like, wow, like it, that really makes you stop and think. And so for her to come to this position as thoughtful as she is and ex as experienced as she is, I think it's going to have really, really valuable results for the country. That very statement that she made, though, it really kind of shone the light on, on some of the inequities mm -hmm. that, that Indigenous mm -hmm. people have been facing. I mean, she was in Quebec, for heaven's sakes, but they didn't think, I know. They would, we're not going to teach you French. Or not just her, but I mean, the, the, the people in that school. It's, it's just astounding that that sort of thing went on. Another one of these things that was happening that we were just never aware of and, and is now starting to come to light. Well, that's it. Like, I think it's, you know, she has obviously so much to share with us. And so I think people really, people, like, personally, I hung on her every word yesterday. And not only the reflection about, about having not learned French, which, you know, because of the situation she was in, which is really something for us all to reflect on. But when she said Canada is a wonderful country, like, we are not hearing that too much lately. And for her to have the kind of, you know, to say that was so powerful. And I thought, wow, you know, like, what, what else is she going to do? What else is she going to say? Like, I, I, you know, she, she obviously has such a warm, sophisticated, um, you know, really lovely presence about her. And so I think, um, you know, and not to put too fine a point on it, let's be honest, the, the office has taken a real hit mm -hmm. from the experiences that we've seen in the past six months, you know, six months to a year. And, you know, part of what the government has had to do, whether they want to do this or not, is find a way to repair that. And I think, you know, by all accounts, what we've seen from her in the first day is that she's so, you know, she's just such a warm, calm presence. And so I think, you know, in terms of kind of building some of the legitimacy back to the office, she's, she's made leaps and bounds in the first day. She's, uh, and this was pointed out by a number of different commentators uh, over the last 24 hours, uh, her CV, as we say, is impeccable, and, and her, her body of work, fabulous. Her approach is going on, uh, and, and we like to see that continue. Uh, but I get the sense, though, that she's, she's not a rock star. She's not a celebrity. Uh, and some right. governors general have been, frankly, could be maybe because mm -hmm. of their past records, et cetera. Uh, and, and they, they kind of like the spotlight. I, I, she's not going to shy away from it necessarily, but I don't think she's going to seek it. She's, she's not looking for, for that kind of attention. That's it. And like, I, I, I really like this point and, and this part of the conversation because I think there's, there's some interesting thinking to be done around the idea of star power in politics. And when I say politics, I mean, you know, politics, public life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the whole, the whole bit. And, we have seen, I think, in a lot of ways, in a lot of jurisdictions, uh, the, the election of celebrities, uh, the power of, of that celebrity status in politics. And for her, you're right. Like, she comes to this as somebody with a tremendous body of work, incredible credentials, somebody who's got a lot of experience, who's, who, you know, there's no question about any of that. But yet she's so humble, right? Like, she's so, you know, she, she just absolutely is not an attention seeker. And she's not coming to this with a sense of a huge profile that she's now going to build on. And there's a, you know, there is a sense, frankly, that some of the people who have been appointed to offices in recent years have come with, you know, kind of riding in on this sense of, of I am already a big deal. And then how do you manage? Um, because, that, again, it goes back to the, the peculiarity of the office of the governor general is that 
you know, you, you possibly could play a huge role in, constant, in the constitutional evolution of the country, but you probably won't. You know, for the most part, you don't make decisions. You know, you, you are celebrating, or not really celebrating, you're, you're recognizing, you're swearing in the, the decisions of somebody else. And so it's a very prominent, yet usually not, you know, a, de- a decision-maker role. You know what I mean? And so it's a, it's a very interesting skill set for a person who's done a lot, you know, to come in and say, okay, I'm not the decision maker here. I'm not the policy maker, but my presence, the way I handle things, the way I govern myself, the way I interact with people is extremely important. As you said, we don't know what's going to happen in, in the future, and a lot of stuff can happen, but just based on her track record, uh, I don't think anything that's going to come at here is going to throw her a curve. I, I, I think she understands yeah. the gravity of the office and the importance of the office, uh, but she, at the same time, uh, she's ready for it. I mean, she's been there, done that, and some of the things she's accomplished on the international stage, frankly, not just nationally, uh, indicates that, uh, that she's ready for this, and she can take whatever they throw at her, whether it's going to be constitutional or whatever the case might be. That's it. Like, it, I think that's a really good point, too. Like, obviously, she has been around the block more than a few times, and she's, she's seen, you know, and dealt with a lot, and she hasn't shied away from any of it. And so I think what comes up, absolutely, she's ready to handle. And she also, she, like, I think her diplomatic experience mm-hmm. um, has given her a lot of, of background and a lot of, of opportunity to develop a feel for that sort of public ceremonial part of the role you know, kind of having that, again, like really important presence while at the same time not being the decision maker, building bonds with people on the basis of trust, on the basis of, of transparency and openness and availability and integrity, right? Like this is really, yeah, I, I think she absolutely <laughs> has this nailed before she even gets into it. So. Uh, Dr. Laura Turnbull, as always, doctor, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thank you, too. Have a great day. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with the uh, changing in uh, border restrictions, the easing of border restrictions, and uh, the fact that we're into summertime now, and we've been locked up, some of us, for 16, 17 months, not going too far away from our front doors, uh, a lot of folks are planning trips, not maybe necessarily across the border, but even across the country. And uh, with that, of course, comes some challenges. Uh, Global's Abigail Beeman has some details. The government is stressing most of the rules have not changed. The Public Health Agency of Canada put out another statement Monday saying, again, now is not the time to travel. A reminder, you can only skip quarantine if you are a Canadian citizen or otherwise already exempt. There are no new exemptions. You need to be 14 days post full vaccination with a Health Canada approved jab. And you need a new version of the ArriveCan app where you upload your proof of vaccination as well as a negative PCR test result. You will still need another PCR test on arrival. That's a big step. We're going to see travel volumes go up. We're going to ensure that our airports and our travel facilities are able to handle the new surge with careful measures in place. The Prime Minister said the next step would involve allowing fully vaccinated people from other countries to enter Canada and he's hopeful there will be an announcement in the coming weeks. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. Thank you, Abigail. That sounds like great news, and it is really good news that, that, you know, we're finally starting to get back to a little bit of where we were before. The problem is, is we know the variants are still out there, the virus is still out there, there are other parts of the country, not just other parts of the world, uh, where this could be a concern, and... Uh, I just hope we're not rushing into this and saying, okay, let's just throw caution to the wind. There's a recent survey that was done here that indicates that that may be the case. Uh, according to a, a survey that was actually done here uh, by Race.ca uh, and BNM Bloomberg, 52% of Canadians who are planning to travel outside the country this year are, are maybe purchasing uh, it's, it's trip insurance. It's, you know, this seems like a natural thing for us to do, but a lot of Canadians just say, nah, nah, we're good. You know, and and I'm not so sure that's such a smart thing. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it's not a very smart thing. And I'm explaining it to you in just a second here with our next guest, uh, Jameson Burko is the managing editor of Rates.ca, and uh, they involved in the survey as we just mentioned, and he joins us here on the program to talk about this. Uh, Jameson, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Great to be here, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about some of these numbers here. And I, I got to tell you, I, I'm a cautious guy. I mean, if we're going to travel, you want to take all precautions. Uh, because if I've learned one thing, not just in my experience, but in talking to so many other people over the years, uh, 
don't ever think that, well, I'm just going to have a short trip. Nothing could go wrong. I'm, I'm fine. Because I've heard so many nightmares, and I'm sure you have too, of people that said, yeah, I, you know what, I was just going across the border to shop for a couple of days. Uh, I tripped and, tri- you know, hurt my ankle, broke my arm, whatever the case might be, and they didn't have insurance, and the cost can be remarkable. Uh, you would think that common sense would indicate that Canadians should be taking advantage of this, but apparently not too many of them are going to be doing that. Just barely half, according to the survey we did, Bill. So, yeah, I think that we share your concern as to the risk that a lot of Canadians seem, for whatever reason, still willing to take with their own safety, you know. And it's, of course, doubly surprising that even as we, you know, fingers crossed, get through the last stages of this once-in-a-century health emergency, that you know, that would be the wake-up call for Canadians to say, you know what, I need to make sure I'm protected if I'm going to leave the country. Uh, you know, there are too many other countries that have the blessings of a publicly funded national health care system that uh, Canada has, and, you know, maybe Canadians aren't fully aware of that. But, you know, it's funny that you, were, you mentioned, you know, the, the possibility of, like, I slipped, I broke my arm, or, or what have you. Uh, I actually pulled some data, some actual insurance claims that were paid for people who were and use some examples like, say, going on a two-week trip to Florida or Arizona, it's probably among the more common trips that I imagine your listeners would be taking or that, you know, most Canadians would take in a, in a sort of typical vacation. And we looked at, like, what happens if someone, say, slips and breaks their arm, right? So not even thinking of the, you know, what's, what happens if there's a pandemic or something horribly rare and very serious. But, you know, it, it can happen. You can slip, you can break your arm. The cost, you mentioned it's exorbitant. I can put an exact figure to it. 33000 U.S. dollars. That's a bill you would have to pay, Bill. Not, no pun intended. But, <laughs> you know, you would absolutely suffer financially from, not, of course, you know, it hurts to break your arm. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's a not just a new car. That's a new luxury car because we're talking well, about U.S. dollars here. So the cost of the health insurance you know, just to give you the frame of, of comparison, is for a typical two-week trip, say if you're traveling alone, it's about 20 bucks. If you're traveling with a spouse and a couple, say, you know, teenage kids, it's maybe about 50 bucks. So the cost is, you know, marginal, negligible, whatever term you want to use, and the protection is just super-duper useful in a situation like this. Uh, there have been so many examples of things like this, and you, and I know I know people go say oh, this sounds like an infomercial. I'm, I just want people to be cautious about this because I don't want to see them get caught up in some of the other stories. We, we had some dear friends of ours; who, their parents went down to Vegas a couple of years ago in good health, you know, just see, everything seemed to be fine. And, and sadly, uh, the mom had a heart attack in Las Vegas, oh, and, and unfortunately passed away. But the result here was that she was hospitalized with a number, lots and lots of care that was involved in this. And don't sure. assume because you have an hip card that, that that's a free pass that's that's a government of ontario card uh and don't assume that that's going to get you what you need to get down there it's very very costly uh to go to a hospital and even to get a broken arm fixed or even something more serious like like cardiac situations like this uh mm-hmm. and i've you've heard i know you have jameson in your line of work but you've heard about some of these astronomical amounts of money for people that end up being in the hospital for two three four five days or something like that you get a bill mm-hmm. at the end of that yeah you're going to get a bill that's possibly going to be more than the value of your home at that point, and, and you're going to have to pay it. This is something that, you know, is clearly not top of mind to a lot of Canadians, right, Bill? And, you know, I, I recognize that, that, you know, like you said, this might come across as like a, an infomercial, but, you know, and, and of course, you know, our line of work is, like, Grace.ca is directly involved in, you know, trying, we, we make money, the more people buy insurance, there's no, you know, we're not, we're not trying to hide that, but at the same time, we're not trying to convince people to do anything that's not in their best interest. In fact, we're trying to do the opposite, right? We're, we're really trying to remind people that there is a risk and that you can minimize it for or eliminate it effectively, at least the financial part of it. I mean, you're always going to risk injury or, you know, health risks are always going to exist. But, you know, you can account for it really, really inexpensively. And, you know, I, I was quite surprised when I saw that survey result, and I see you were too, that, you know, barely half of Canadians already agree, you know. So we clearly have a lot of work to do in explaining the value of just, you know, being sure that you're adequately protected because, you know, it's funny, you know, going to Las Vegas, but even if you were to go to, say, Alberta, right, you're still in Canada. There's no reason to think that you would need 
health insurance because you have that OHIP card. You think you can just hand it to the hospital in Alberta if you need to. But the reality is OHIP will not compensate Alberta's health system for everything that happens. They will only compensate them for what would have been an equivalent standard of care if whatever happened to you in Alberta happened in Ontario. For, you know, say, for example, you needed ambulance in Alberta. Well, Ontario doesn't cover ambulances. So even though Alberta's healthcare system does, you're going to have to pay for that ambulance. You know, and, and these yeah. are things I think very few Canadians recognize because they're thinking, well, I'm still in Canada. I should still be covered. But that is very much not the case. But here's the problem. And, and again, I'm going back to some of the stories that I've heard from people over the years. You don't find out about those little nuances until it's too late, until you're already yeah. in that circumstance, in that predicament. And, and all of a sudden, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean I have to pay for the ambulance? Well, you have to pay for the ambulance. What do you mean it's going to cost me $30,000 to get my, you know, my son's broken arm fixed? Uh, you, you, people just, I think I say there's a false sense of security here in, in Ontario, especially, I would think, and in the other provinces, I, th- I think singularly, uh, because we don't pay. We, you know, we go to the hospital, we get fixed. We, our loved ones are, are cared for, and then you, you go home or go back to wherever it is you're going. Uh, it's not like that everywhere else in the world. And, uh, you know, you, you can't just say, well, I'm from Ontario. They're going to say, big deal. Here's the bill. Yeah, yeah. They're going to say, see if, see if your, you know, Ontario health system will pay it. And I can tell you right now, they won't. <laughs> so, you know, that really speaks to the, the perhaps just, you know, this mistaken belief that, you know, other places are like Ontario and healthcare is, you know, it's, it's something we all wish was the case, right? We all wish that healthcare was a non-monetary service that was just given to people because, you know, it's a basic human right to have your health taken care of. But that's just not the case in the vast majority of the world. And unfortunately, it looks like a lot of Canadians really need a wake-up call in that regard because, you know, we are very privileged very lucky as Canadians to have access to a system like this. And the reason we're so privileged and lucky is because it's extremely rare. And, you know, you don't want to be suffering that rude awakening. Like you said, Bill, you don't want to, you know, hear about the actual reality of, you know, the international state of healthcare until it's way too late. And you're potentially financially ruined by that. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could handle a, a substantial medical expense to the tune of, you know, what the American medical system charges for. Well, know, I'll give you an example. I'll give, I'll give you guys and our listeners another example. Uh, lady from the Hamilton area, and this is a few years ago. I'm a, a huge Boston Red Sox fan, as all our listeners know. And she mm-hmm. actually went down to Boston, went to Fenway Park. And as people know, it's an old, old park, and it's you know, not in the best of shape. It's, they're doing what they can. Long story short, she tripped and fell. And uh, she got attendant care as soon as she was there, uh, but they had to take her to the hospital. Well, Beth Jacob Israel Hospital is a block away from Fenway Park. The ambulance ride cost her $1,200 Whoa. to go a block. And that's not even counting the care that she had to get in the hospital, which you know is a, is also yeah, a concern. We, yeah, and you just think, instead of having a bill like that, like you say, if you pay twenty five or thirty bucks for uh, insurance, uh, you, you can rest comfortably knowing that okay, I don't, I'm not going to get a bill for this because the, you know, the 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 upside is is that it's going to be looked after. The downside is you're going to get stuck with this. Yeah, I mean, now in the future, if I ever think of that and I don't have insurance, I'll pay someone a hundred bucks to carry me to the hospital. Yeah, <laughs> get a much better deal. <laughs> It's it's right. and and That's your point. I, I know there've been discussions uh, for people that are gonna say, "Well, yeah, you're right. I'm just going to Alberta. Or I'm gonna go. You know, I want to go to Quebec City. That's fine, but." We don't have a universal health card in Canada. We have an Ontario system. We we have ten different Ooh. systems, eleven of them, I guess. And and they're not, as you say, they're not all compatible. Well, exactly. And every, in fact, none of them are. You know, they're they're all they all exist in silos against each other, right? Like, they, they will reimburse. Like I said, they'll reimburse for what their system would provide. But it's important to note that there is no, like, baseline. You know, most basic things, obviously, are covered by the healthcare systems of individual provinces. But there are no guarantees. And anytime anyone makes an assumption, you know, like, Let's say you're traveling from Alberta elsewhere and you've just always known that ambulance services are covered because you've always lived in Alberta, then you're making an assumption that that is a standard across all provincial and territorial healthcare systems. And the reality is that assumption is incorrect. Many of them do not cover that. 
And that's just one example because it's easy to think about. But, of course, you can get, and we could talk for hours if you wanted to, about all the nuances of different healthcare systems and how it works. And, you know, even if you aren't going to end up paying a lot of money, you will most assuredly be paying in time and energy and effort in filling out what I can only imagine are incomprehensible, endless forms and documents to sort it all out, because I can assure you that the individual provincial healthcare systems, they do talk to each other, but that conversation is by no means efficient. So you are going to be caught in the middle of a bureaucratic nightmare. Might not cost you in money, but it's going to cost you in some gray hair, losing your hair, I don't know, however your body reacts to stress. It's going to be a stressful situation. Well, and those discussions about trying to have you know have a compatible system right across the country have only been happening since about 1964, and they're not there yet. So don't hold your breath waiting for it to happen. Well, it's you just know government time. That's pretty fast. Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Yeah, but <laughs> but I just we we need to to be clear about this that you know the, the downside here can be astronomically expensive and uh, quite aside as you say from the grief and everything else that's caused. What what, what is it that with, with people that so few of them want to actually go down this road and spend that twenty five or thirty bucks for that sort of peace of mind? in situations like that is this uh, one of these uh, uh, this is never going to happen to me attitudes uh that's got to be part of it i mean i should stress of course to be perfectly clear bill we didn't measure exactly like the the reasons people were saying no yeah. we, we did get a few responses to the tune of you know a, a, a pretty common one in fact was that i already have coverage through another source because say your credit card for example like if you have a visa or a mastercard as you know most canadians do um, there is a certain amount of travel insurance that is included in just you know the fact that you have the card but people don't think twice about that they'll think i have it and therefore it's enough but it's usually very minimal you know like it might cover the ambulance ride but it's not going to cover the hospital stay right so they might pay that 1200 dollars bill you mentioned for that fenway park lady but they're definitely not paying for whatever had to be done for her in, in the hospital because it's a very rudimentary, basic, essentially like emergency only, hence, you know, ambulance, emergency services or, or what have you. Um, that's all it's really going to do. So, and of course, I can't speak like to all the policies out there because a lot of them have, you know, different options and add-ons. So, I, you know, I can't. Paint yeah, but the that, therein lies the problem, though, Jameson. Uh, most people... And I think I can make this statement with, with a fair bit of confidence. As soon as you start talking insurance with most people, their eyes just glaze over. And I said, well, have oh, you ever yeah. read your policy? No, I don't know what it means. Uh, so you may think, oh, I'm covered from work. Well, maybe you are, but how extensively is that coverage? If through your, your, you know, your, your Visa card or your MasterCard, whatever the case might be, if, if you're going to go down that road and say, I'm going to be okay because of that, you better check and find out what is covered and what isn't covered uh, before yeah. you just figure everything's going to be fine because it's not always the case. And one thing that's really important to help people sort of get over that hurdle, because, you know, you're totally right. It's like, I'm not going to pretend that insurance is an exciting subject. It's boring. It's not exciting. But at the same time, because of that, you know, truism, a lot of people assume, okay, if I want to find the information I need, you know, if I want to see what I'm covered for and what I'm not covered for, I'm going to have to read through a thousand pages of, you know, point two font, uh, you know, type, and uh, I'm going to have to get a lawyer to review it. You can just, it, it, it really is very simple and very quick. You call up your insurer. Most insurers have, you know, a, a toll-free number that you can call, and you just ask, and the person at the phone will tell you. And it's a, you know, few minutes of your time, and then you get that, and, you know, if you already have the coverage and they say you're covered for what you need, then it also doesn't cost you a dollar. So there is that belief that it's really hard to get that information, but that is just not true. It is really actually getting easier and easier. You know, certainly insurance also, by virtue of its stereotype, is not the most technologically advanced industry, but at the same time, they are embracing these, you know, web portals and chat services that a lot of the more technologically advanced industries are adapting and applying. And so you know, it could be as simple as a few keystrokes on your keyboard to get the answers you're looking for. It's really not as, you know, 
thick and and complicated and the kind of bureaucratic, like the movie Brazil kind of craziness that I think is the image a lot of people have. Uh, we're just about out of time here, but what final note? And far be it from me, I'm not trying to besmirch the, the insurance industry, uh, but if you yeah, do fall short and if you don't do this, uh, they're not going to say we don't cover that, but you know what? That's a tough situation you had. We'll make an exception. They don't do that. Uh, no means no when you're dealing with insurance companies. Uh, so you better make sure yep. that you you know what is covered when you go away. That's all. And we'll leave it at that for the, for the time being. Uh, very, very fascinating survey and very revealing about our attitudes. And hopefully we've uh, got a few people... Uh, thinking about it right now, if they're going to make their travel plans and, uh, and maybe second thoughts about exactly what they need to do. Jameson, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. It's been my pleasure, Bill. You have a great day. Ta- take care. Jameson Burko, manage to get her for rates.ca. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know about the story, of course, about uh, Shakari Richardson, uh, who has been receiving a, a ban for a certain period of time because, uh, well, they did the, the, the testing and found out that she had ingested marijuana. And uh, it's, it's gone to the next step, of course. Now she's been left off the U.S. Olympic team. Mike Garcia has the details. American sprinter Shikari Richardson, who was banned from the women's 100-meter race at the upcoming Tokyo Olympics after testing positive for marijuana, is not on the U.S. Olympic roster, released Tuesday by USA Track and Field. The omission means Richardson will not run as part of the U.S. 4x100 relay team. Richardson tested positive for marijuana after winning the 100 meters at the U.S. Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon last month. She accepted a 30-day suspension. The suspension will end before the start of the Olympic relays August 5th, which opened the possibility she could run in that event. In a statement, USA Track and Field said it fully agrees that international rules regarding marijuana should be re-evaluated. I'm Mike Gracia. Well, it's not going to happen in time for her, I guess, to partake in the Olympics. That's unfortunate. There is a fascinating essay about this in the conversation that uh, is authored by our next guest. Uh, Angela Schneider is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Angela, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Very timely. I'm, I'm glad you could hop on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. You know, when I heard the story initially about about Shikari, it obviously brought back a lot of memories about uh, about Ross Bugatti, of course, the snowboarder uh, from the Winter Olympics, we had the Vancouver Olympics some years ago, uh, who was in the same circumstance, tested positive for marijuana and, and a banned substance, and we all know what ha- the ensuing kerfuffle was about that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed and. Uh, to understand how marijuana is actually a performance-enhancing uh, substance. I, I, it seems to me that from my experience that I've heard from other people, it's just the opposite of this, but it's on the list nonetheless. Yes, yeah, so there's some interesting history there as to why it is on the list. Um, when the first ban list was created by WADA, I was a director for ethics and education at WADA at the time, so I attended some of those meetings. And there was no question that the USA was not going to sign on to the World Anti-Doping Code unless marijuana was on the banned list because the U.S. drug czar, General Barry McCaffrey, wanted to deal with recreational drugs too because that was part of their mandate. So uh, that was one of the primary political motivations as to why marijuana ended up on it. We still get, occasionally, people trying to defend it being performance-enhancing because it's relaxing or performance-enhancing because it reduces fear. But it's a little bit absurd to say it's performance-enhancing in the 100-meter sprint. <laughs> so when that <laughs> happens, we end up having this discussion. What is recreational drugs doing on that list in the first place? Because it seems ridiculous in a cruel standard, if you look at the case at hand. So there are, you know, what happens when this kind of thing happens is you get some more extreme uh, views come out on the topic, which just says, let's just stop this silly testing game. Uh, it costs a great deal of money, which could be wisely spent elsewhere. So let's get rid of it. But the problem it, is, is that that would cause more problems for the athletes as well. The, the list itself I find amazing. And, and you mentioned about your time with WADA. That's the World Anti-Doping Agency, by the way, that people don't, understand, don't know the acronym. Uh, and, and some of the stuff that gets included is, is rather bizarre. The discussions about what should be on and what should be on, uh, I'd like to be a fly in the wall when that sort of stuff happened. I mean, McCaffrey, obviously, what, what he did in this situation was he wanted this on there it, just so it was another tool in his, his toolbox. You know, it, it had nothing at all to do with the Olympics. He just wanted to say, if you do that, you're not going to be an Olympic athlete. That that's really seemed to be the, the intent. Well, yes, and also, you know, they, at the time, WADA was asking for governments to fund you know, give some funding money 
Mm-hmm. And if they're going to give funding money, they want it to fit with their mandate as well. So that was part of the discussion. And we had that with caffeine as well. So caffeine yep. was originally on the ban list because the South American representatives had an abuse problem with it in sport, and they didn't have the money to run an educational campaign to deal with it. So they asked WADA to put it on. And so caffeine was eventually taken off the list in 2003, but not before some athletes had their medals stripped for it. Talk to us about the program itself and about the, the testing uh, that goes on, the process and, and the efficacy or lack of uh, with this. I, you mentioned just a minute ago, this costs a lot of money. Are you yeah. getting value for the dollar? Well, I, I think we could. Uh, I think that, and I'm not saying that, you know, people's intents are, are not good. They're trying their best, but there is something really wrong with it because it, there, there are so many things that could actually be taken off that just aren't the big uh, factors. Some of the things, though, need to be on, and, and we still need, there's still a significant role for water because if you'll remember, when we had the Russian doping scandal, uh, we had a situation where athletes, um, these were the people that needed witness protection afterwards, mm-hmm. were explaining how they felt coerced to take the substances because it was state-sponsored doping, um, similar to what we saw in the former East Germany. So the athletes do need some protection. Also, we have gene doping as a possibility, which makes uh, using steroids look like eating Smarties, uh, but it's it's highly dangerous, uh, great, much greater risk. So the athletes, they don't need these ex- extra risks on these really high and intense um, risk substances and practices because they're already taking high risk. To, they pay a really high price to be where they are. So to eliminate things they don't need to worry about is a good idea, but we need to turn to them, and that's my point. Um, no athlete is going to support pharmaceutical libertarianism, like we just everybody go for whatever they want, and for very good reasons. But it is they who take the risk, and it should be them who help to decide what's on it. And, and they have in the past in the meetings that I attended at WADA expressed support for having a banned list. It's just the debate about some of these things that are on it. Well, and, and a much more broader discussion, I think, at the same time, as you're suggesting, Angela, that, that maybe the athlete should be part of that conversation. Yes. And, and you know, WADA does have an athlete committee, uh, and there has been athlete involvement. And there's no question that athlete collectives are growing. Um, Global Athlete is a new organization. So they are getting a stronger voice. They are getting better organized. They, they are a reasonable group. So I do think that there are better opportunities to bring them in and allow their voice to be heard. And I think that should be the primary decision-making process because, frankly, the way the list was developed when I was participating, it was a lot of scientists uh, sitting around the table saying, well, this could be performance-enhancing and this is the research. But you know what? It's not just about that. It's about also what we want to celebrate in sport and what those athletes want, why, why they're doing it. And they need to put forward their voice to contribute to this process how rampant is the abuse well you know i think that there is probably a great deal of uh, a high number of people using minor amounts and being Mm -hmm. able to work around it but a lot of this stuff you know when we talk about marijuana and caffeine everybody in society can use this so to call it abuse you know, is probably not the right word. Uh, But in the case of some of the steroids, like what we saw with Russia in some countries, there can be serious abuse. So I think it it is the case that there are cultural pockets within sports. Uh, Some sports have a greater prevalence of it, and we know that. Um, And some sports get targeted more because of that. Um, And there are some sports where it's not an issue at all. Uh, So it really does vary. Because I'm always wondering about that. Um, invariably, it's it's the winners who get tested. Uh, you know, congratulations, you. Okay, now you know. Let's let's get a sample. If I'm taking those uh, performance enhancing materials, whatever it might be, and I finish fifth, uh, that might still be the best showing I ever had. But I, I'm still guilty. But uh, unless there's a random test, nobody's ever going to find out about that. And I'm just wondering just how extensive that that is within the, that realm. I mean, we've had those discussions, and I know you probably have too, with Dick Pound over the years about uh, what what's going on 
here, and it, uh, I guess that started with Ben Johnson years ago, uh, with when he had to give up his medal after the Tokyo Olympics, uh, and not the Tokyo, but in South Korea, and and it goes on and on like this, and you just wonder, wait a second, is just the, the tip of the iceberg? But in your experience, is is it the opposite of that? That that this is not happening to, with the regularity that a lot of people might think. I do think it varies by sport. I really do. I do think there's huge variation on this and that there are some sports where it's endemic and it is a big problem. But, you know, you talk about these random tests. They do They do require the athlete whereabouts. Any athlete that's on the national team has to give their whereabouts so that they can be tested any time mm-hmm. uh, so that they do do these random ones. But you think of the cost per test. And you think of what it takes to, to do that, it's extraordinary. And what WADA has had to do with this case with Russia is that they have had to shift um, in their budgets because they originally were focusing and relying primarily on analytic lab expertise. And now with what happened in Russia with the FSB, uh, they've had to rely on intelligence gathering intelligence gathering to catch this level of national systemic doping <laughs> so i mean it's not like a, a rogue athlete like lance armstrong this is state supported doping so to be able to have the funds to catch that to be able to prove that we we saw what happened and how that unfolded and to many people this was outrageous that it happened so people still really care about this issue and we do need to still have a list and there's still a very important role for WADA, but we need to review this list and I think significantly reduce it and focus our efforts uh, much more tightly. Has there ever been a discussion about the efficacy of, of, of the material? And let's, let's use, in, in this case, Sherry, you know, Sherry Carey's example here uh, with the marijuana. Uh, I've read reports that suggest that if you're using marijuana that it can stay in your system for 25 to 30 days uh which i would think that means it has virtually no impact if it was 26 days ago that she had that and still in her system and she won the race I, uh, can you really make that connection that 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 that, that, that was a factor in the in the, her, her victory well i think it is a little bit absurd actually to say it's performance enhancing in her case uh but but you look at the criteria for the band list, and two of the three things must be met, that it's harmful, performance-enhancing, or a violation of the spirit of sport. And it's been argued that by groups on the list committee that it, it does meet two of those criteria. But the point that I'm making is that I think we really need to fine-tune this significantly and really go after the big issues and the big um, in performance enhancers and not these these small issues that cost money and cost people's careers. Like it, it, it it's really we this this kind of example really should make us pause and 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 look at this and say what are we doing this for? Why are we spending all of this money? And I think the answer and the way ahead has always been with the athletes themselves. And and I and I do think there's a role, but I do think we have to do a major review here. Um, and, and significantly reduce this ban list because, as you point out, many people uh, quite quite rightly would challenge whether or not uh, this this particular American athlete gained any performance enhancement from the marijuana in her system. When these rules were instituted way back when with the, uh, the anti-doping agency, was there any establishment of, of, of a reevaluation at some point or is it just this is it the carbon stone and that's the way it's going to be I know I know caffeine was eventually dropped from the list but is there is there a, a regular reevaluation yes there is the list it does get uh, updated but more things get added than dropped uh, so you know and I I would argue too there are potential conflicts of interest here too with people adding things you know because the more things there are to test for the more money is made by the testers so mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that's WADA but I I am saying that you know what this is why the athletes need to have a bigger role here I mean of course we need the scientific evidence but it needs to be significant scientific evidence for significant enhancement and significant harm. And that a lot of these things that we're spending all this money on are, are not worth chasing down. I, I'm not trying to be naive here, but I'm wondering if this whole process is part of a, a bigger concern here about the, the, the 
perceived cleanliness of amateur athletics. You know, you, to be an amateur, I mean, if I accepted dinner from somebody, they'd say, okay, you know what, you took, you're, you're not amateur anymore. You were paid for your, your, your abilities. It, it got ridiculous at some point. And, and I think they've started to relax that a little bit. But are, do we need to take that same process and that same mindset to what's going on here? I do think there are parallels here. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, and, and it is the case that we're talking about uh, a set of values. It's not that we don't and can't have very great values in Olympic sport. That's not the case. But it is the case that there are many countries where something like marijuana is now legal. So, But there are countries where it's not. But it is not about sport, I would argue. Marijuana is, is primarily a recreational drug or for pain in some cases for people who have cancer and other serious illnesses. But it really isn't up there with some of the very significant performance enhancers that cause very significant risk. And and so that's what I would argue is what's got to be prioritized. Is that discussion ongoing? Is it happening anywhere? Well, I, I mean, the list co- committee does review things, but I don't, you know, I, I don't know that there's there, you know, and they probably will review this, but I really think there needs to be a much stronger social community input into this. Um, and, and, and also the athletes, as I said. So I, I don't think there's the kind of input right now that, um, that really will make that kind of shift that we're talking about. Uh, so I do think it requires a, a, a paradigm shift here about what the focus should be and what the finances should be spent on. And, and there are serious things. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want athletes to have to deal with, you know, systemic national government-supported doping. Uh, that should, that's a major thing. And we don't want athletes to be in situations of dealing with things like gene doping. So there are really, really significant things that do need to be addressed. And the athletes need to be at the table as full partners on this. And they have been there in a minor role, and their collectives have always been supportive of some form of list. Uh, But I do think we need to review this, because when a career is ruined, or at least her career has made a major detour, if it's not ruined, um, because of this kind of a positive test, why are they testing for that? Why are they putting that on the list? Because then we're going to go around to every country in the world and say, what do you think is socially bad? Should we put that on the list? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it really is uh, beyond the mandate of sport. Well, there's been a societal change in attitudes with a lot of these substances, and clearly that's not being reflected in what the guys are doing. Uh, it's a fascinating piece. Uh, people can go to the conversation to the webpage later on and, and read it for themselves. Angela, thank you so much for, for the submission, and thanks for spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Angela Schneider, uh, Director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. And as I say, she was in on the process and attended many of those meetings, so she knows what else she speaks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.